out of town, and uh, so we miss him, but uh, thank you so much, Missy, and the rest of the team. It's nice to have Pasquale back up there on those egg beater things up there, and uh, appreciate that very much, and, and thank you, Katie and Hannah. I called them Hannah and Emily earlier, but that's not Hannah and Emily, but uh, thank you all so much. All right, it's good to see you all today. Is it good to be seen? Praise the Lord. All right, so that was a whopper of a storm that came through, wasn't it? Some of you are going, that was no big deal. It was a big deal for us. Debbie and I lost five trees in our backyard. And in fact, we were outside doing a little bit of a workout. It was driving rain, and we were having a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden, we got a text saying that there was not going to be any tornado in Earliesville. Later read the text again saying the tornado was going to be in Earliesville. <laughs> and uh, it just all of a sudden unloaded with wind. And I saw a tree falling towards the house and screamed and said, let's get inside. And, and we did. And when it was all over with, five of them had come down, crashed our swimming pool. I mean, this is a third world problem, right? I mean, the first world problem. So... Fence destroyed, and uh, so anyway, we had, a, had an interesting go of it, and so uh, we're just thanking the Lord and, and praising Him for safety and security. Pray for Brother Rick Haggard. Uh, he had a tree, a huge tree, just come right down in the middle of their house, and he and Miss Betty were in it, uh, in, the, in the house, and um, thankfully nothing happened to them, uh, but they have been with, were without power, and finally got somebody there and got a tarp over the roof, and and so as a church, we're going to try to help them as much as we can. But um, praise the Lord. You know, it could have been much worse. If you drive through Earliesville, Earliesville, Earliesville Road and just a little bit up Advanced Mill there, you'll see some of the, uh, the havoc that this thing happened, just, just caused just so quickly, just so suddenly. We were talking about how amazing it is, the power of the wind. And it's something. It can go from a beautiful day to all of a sudden have that kind of... Uh, uh, a storm. It's just absolutely amazing. And thank the Lord for those that are out there that do the service work for us. We have we actually have a, a friend of ours who works here for Dominion in Charlottesville, and um, we've known him since he was just a young guy, been friends with our son, and he always tells us, told his mom and dad that when when he hears of our power being out, that he tries to get that as his request so that he can get his crew over there to help us. And so he was texting saying, hey, we'll be there in just a little bit. But Speaking of which, um, pray for these people as they're out in these storms because he has been, just as an example, been working for the last uh, four weeks with no stop down in the Virginia Beach area. And you still don't know the life of these power workers, utility workers, until you uh, know some of them. And he's hoping to get a day off next Friday, uh, but just work around the clock to try to keep our power on and keep things going. So a lot of, a lot of praises this morning. And uh, thank the Lord that you're here and we're here together and we can enjoy uh, this time of fellowship. All right. So find your place in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at that this morning as we're back into Matthew 5 and another area that the Lord wants to address in our hearts. And as you're finding your place in Matthew chapter 5, we'll read that in just a moment. But let's pray and ask the Lord's blessings on our day. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather this morning. And that's something that we always want to be careful to do, is to thank you for your great kindness to us and the joy that we experience having you in our hearts and how you really do protect your people. And so we thank you for preserving my wife and me and for others uh, that were in the real eye of the storm, so to speak, and 
there was no greater damage than there was. And so uh, we just glorify you and praise you. We thank you that we can come back together on this Sunday. And now we're here celebrating communion once again. And it just seems like it's been so missed. And we just praise you for this ordinance that you've given us to represent your life and your death and your resurrection so that we might have life. So prepare our hearts, we pray, as we study your word this morning and we glean truth from it so that we know how to better conduct our lives, but also prepare us, Lord, and examine our hearts that we might be prepared to take part in communion. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this week, I was on a phone call with somebody, and uh, they were asking me a very serious question. And that question was, how do I know God's will? And they were talking about a particular circumstance. And, and uh, my wife said to me, that sounded, your answer sounded like something only a seminary student could discern. And I said, well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but after I'd finished giving them my answer, uh, it came down to this, really. You first of all have to know that your heart has been changed. In other words, you've got to know that you belong to Christ and that there was a time in your life where you gave him who you are, that you surrendered yourself to him. And from that, God will lead you in the direction that you want to go. And so it was a good conversation, a necessary conversation. And the real point that I wanted him to understand was, is that it all starts in the heart. Everything begins in the heart. And that's what the Lord has been focusing on in these studies as we've been going through them. And so to get people to understand, Jesus is attacking their substandard system of righteousness. And I say that purposefully because they had really gravitated towards uh, creating some kind of way externally to be righteous, to be good people. And so Jesus in this sermon is ripping the mask off of their broken belief system and helping them see what really is at stake here, and that is eternity if your heart is not right. And so if I could just throw that out again to us this morning, uh, that's what really needs to be heard in all of this, not just my sermon, but all of the messages that the Lord gives. And in fact, that's what the Bible teaches us, is that for a person to be right with God, there must be a heart change, this inner part of us. I'm not talking about the blood pumping muscle. I'm talking about the inner soul of the individual. There must be a heart change. And I'll tell you, folks, we can see in one another when that heart change has occurred, right? Those of you who are true believers, you know that. You know by your words, you know by your actions, you know by others' words and others' actions and how they're conducting their lives, whether their heart has changed. Now, we're not judging. God is the judge, but we do become uh, aware of where people really are in their system of belief, and that proves itself when they get out in the world. Take a child, for example, who lives under the, uh, the teaching of a parent. When they get out into the world, what they really have in their hearts will be edified. It will be brought out, in other words, in a negative way a lot of times. And so we can see what's really happening. And so God is saying to them at this time in this sermon, your hearts must be changed. Your hearts must be changed. Now, you know, if you've been with us, he addresses several subjects there. And we're not going to go back through. But he really wants them to understand that they have a false understanding and trying to destroy their confidence that they have in themselves. So that they're not basing their salvation on anything that they have done or their relationship with the Lord on anything that they have done, but on their own, on God's righteousness themselves. Okay? And here's the reality, beloved. No one will seek a Savior 
unless they first recognize they're drowning or they're dying, right? No one. I don't care who you are. No person will ever gravitate towards God, move towards God, understand that they need a Savior unless they know they are in dire situations, that they are in great peril of eternal life. It'll be just a surface thing. And so it's critical that you understand that. No man will cry out to save him or her from death if they don't first see that they're dying. That is just a fact of life in the spiritual world. So for anybody to be saved, they have to admit that they are hopelessly lost. And that's very counter to everything that our human nature wants to tell us. We are very arrogant people by trade. We are very selfish. And we think we've got the corner on the market on just about everything internally. And the reality is God says, I want you to abandon yourself and give yourself to me as a beggar would come searching for food or something to drink. And so the question that Jesus is continually asking is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? What is the motive behind who you are? That really becomes the stimulating question for everything that he's doing in this sermon. Now, Jesus is going to give us another trial of the heart this morning. And this is going to be part one because we just don't have time to get through all of it. I want to just address the initial thoughts of what Jesus is dealing with here first so you get a good handle on that. And then next week, we'll talk about the details of how these things affect us individually. It'll be a little more application in that sense. But I've titled this message this morning, A Christian and Personal Retaliation. Personal being the key phrase, the key word there. A Christian and personal retaliation. So stand with me, if you will, in honor of God's word in reading verse 38 through 42, verses 38 through 42 of Matthew chapter 5. Very similarly, Jesus is going to address, speak out the way he's been doing in this sermon. So he says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, amen. You may be seated. Pretty easy, right? Piece of cake. And we would all say, yeah, 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 I do that all the time. Well, probably not. Let's just talk about us for just a minute. In our nation... Uh, we have been established as a people who have personal rights, right? I mean, that's what the foundation of the world, excuse me, the, well, the world too, but our, our country really specifically, uh, we were established on rights, personal rights, property rights. Uh, we were established on religious rights. Everything centers around rights of all kinds. And many, 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 many men and women both have given their lives to defend the rights that we enjoy. They have given their lives in lots of ways. Some of you have been there. You've given your life in, in various capacities to make sure that our rights as a people stay preserved. Some people have given the ultimate sacrifice of giving their life to make sure that our rights are preserved. And that's who we are. Because freedom is a powerful motivator. We like to be free. We don't want constraints on us. In fact, we idolize people who stand up against those who disagree with us. 
and don't feel the same way, no matter who it offends. I mean, we love the superhero. If you are a Marvel person, you understand what I mean? You're not, well, you're marvelous, right? You get that. But I'm talking about the Marvel comic people. You like the superheroes? Am I the only one? No, I know I'm not the only one. I know there's at least one out here who likes Marvel stuff, yeah. We like the Avengers. We like those people who stand up for us, those people who come in the last moment and avenge our rights or avenge what's been done wrong to us. Someone who's going to be my protector against that villain. We like the good guy. You know, if you've watched a television show, you know, they follow the same pattern. Good guy versus bad guy. Hopefully, eventually, the good guy wins. It's not always the case, but we like that. We love the ending of the story that is that way. We like it so much that we want to be protected from the person who is even maybe my neighbor, the person that I deal with the most, or my coworker, or even a family member. Retaliation for many, and I'm speaking mainly here in America, but this is really humanity too, is to be American. It is to stand up, or at least to be human. In other words, if someone stands in my way of my rights, I will trample them because I have been given these rights. And I will applaud anyone who does the same. That's how we're built, as long as it helps me. I'll stand up as long as I get the benefit of it in some way. Now, I'm talking about our sinful nature here. I'm not talking about all the ifs, ands, or buts. I'm speaking generally here so that we understand the nature of what Jesus is dealing with. And just to show you out of humorous illustration how we stand up for our rights, there's a story of a woman who was bitten by a mad dog who believed was to have rabies, and she was told that she was going to die So the doctor says to her, you need to take some time and make out a will. And so she immediately took a pen and paper and began to write. And she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And the doctor comes to her and says, wow, you've got a lot to talk about in your will. And she says, will, nothing. I'm writing the names down of all the people I want to bite. And so there is that sense in which we like vengeance. We like retaliation the same idea. And so, as you can see, too often freedoms are just selfishly taken instead of being accepted as a gift, which is what freedom is. Freedom is a gift to us from God that came at a great cost. One of our biggest, the biggest downfall, really, beloved, is ourselves. We're the problem. We are always the problem. Because of our freedoms, we have become arrogant. We become demanding. We become more selfish and really having very little concern for the next guy. I'm speaking generally now. Of course, this is not 100%. Basically, freedom has taught us to grab everything that we can get for ourselves. But that's because the heart is sinful. And when the sinful heart has freedom, it knows no limits. It will stop at nothing to make sure that it has what it wants. And today, we're literally watching people demand their rights. And if they don't get those rights, they take law into their own hands. Do you see how powerful this is? People will literally strip away what's right and they will become a law unto themselves. And that's what we see in places like Seattle and around the world when people riot and do what they do and they take over areas that are meant to be under the authority of the authorities that are established. Well, people say, I have my rights and in order to be heard about my rights, I will take what's necessary out of my own making and I will push away the law and become a law to myself. 
because I have the freedom to do that. And they'll stop at almost nothing to make that happen. Unfortunately, that belief about their freedoms legitimizes in their own minds and anything person, person or system that stands in the way is come against because they believe they have something rightfully that belongs to them. And one of the first things to go, as I said, is law because law keeps balance. That's the whole purpose of law. The reason why God gave to us law is because God knows that our human hearts will be out of balance almost every time because we're selfish And so he instituted law to keep us in balance. When one person wrote this, when self-interest dominates, justice, however, is replaced by vengeance. And so we wrestle against this thing called law because we want what we want, but law constrains us and it holds us in a certain way. And as this person is saying is that my self-interest so dominates me that I will resort to vengeance when I can't get what I want. Because there's no greater concern than for protecting myself. Not even the interest of others. In fact, just to prove to you that this is really the way the human nature is, let's let God say it. He says in James chapter 4 verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You can almost hear this almost like a parent would come in and talk to two children. What's the problem here? What is this fighting all about? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, isn't it this selfishness inside of you? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Do you see how the Lord is identifying the same thing in the spirit there? But God is not interested in our selfish interests. And those are key words, and I choose my words carefully here so that you understand them clearly. He wants us to live for him. And that should be understood all the time. God is after God's people to live for him because living for him, but living for him is often difficult and a very challenging way to live. But that's what he wants from us and for us. Now, this portion of the Lord's sermon has been greatly misunderstood because people have read this and said, well, the Lord's not requiring of me to follow anything. And basically it sounds like he's requiring me to be a doormat and just let anybody walk over me that wants to walk over me. Some people have said that. Some have said, well, God certainly never wants us to go to war. And that's the pacifist idea. I was preaching in Romania some years ago when uh, the seminary head came up to me after a sermon, actually it was after an illustration that I had used in the message and said, uh, that's going to be an interesting discussion for our next class that's following on morality because we're pacifists. We don't believe in anybody going to war. And I won't take the time to explain to you all of what I was using and talking about there, but it was something to lead us back to the biblical text. So there are some people who believe that, that we're either doormats or we're not to be anything involved in war. Some say we should never be a part of the military at all because the whole purpose of military is to take lives. And so God doesn't want us to be a part of that. Some have believed that Jesus is speaking against any form of government. That now that we're under the age of grace, there is no reason for law. We can all deal with one another that way. In fact, God wants us to be free from any form of leadership or rulership, they would say. But none of that can be really true because in 1 Peter chapter 2 and even Romans 13, God deals with the Christian obeying authority. 
And so those things aren't right. So the question is, what's the Lord talking about here? What's he really dealing with? What's he addressing? Well, he's not talking about a society where there is no law. He's talking about how God's people, listen carefully, are not to take matters of vengeance into their own hands. They're not to take matters of vengeance into their own hands. And you know about that, like when we've been treated, mistreated, or you, you have been mistreated in some way, threatened or maligned by someone or hurt by someone who purposefully tries to bring harm. You know what that's like. You've felt that kind of thing. We sadly fail in this area, often taking the posture of, if you mess with me, I got something for you, right? You come challenge me and I'm going to take care of it. We'll say things like, if you mess with anything that belongs to me, I'll be the law and I'll make the determination and nobody's going to stop me. If you remember the old Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry movies, there's the one scene where he pulls out the 44 Magnum revolver and he says, make my day, punk. Right? I mean, that's the attitude of the sinful heart. I'll take matters into my own hand and I'll take care of what needs to be taken care of. Some people will say the only law around here are Smith and Wesson. Because that's the way it's going to be. When somebody cuts you off on the highway, people will run up behind you, flashing their lights as if you violated their road. It's the heartbeat of the human soul. If you take something that belongs to somebody else, you want them to go down hard. Feel the effects of your wrath, your vengeance. If somebody runs into your vehicle, you want them to feel your vengeance. I was confessing my sins before the other uh, service this morning. Uh, when a situation happened up on Pantops back in the fall, uh, my family and I were eating dinner there at the uh, Tip Top restaurant that morning, excuse me, breakfast that morning, and uh, I probably have told you this story. I was pulling out onto 250, and the traffic was really heavy that morning. You know, it's always a busy restaurant, and a lady just pulls in, almost hits Anna in front of me, our daughter, in her car, and uh, there looks like about enough room just barely to fit a car between us, and so I'm thinking, you know, how your brain flashes real quickly. Okay, this might work. But then I realize that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And my mind is saying all this, and the lady just keeps on coming and sideswipes right down my truck. Well, my wife, bless her heart, goes to check on the woman, which is great. But I wasn't so excited about checking on the woman. I was a little more concerned about what just happened to my truck. And I'm just being honest with you. I'm just telling you that our sinful nature can come out and say, um, I want some real retribution here. I want justice to be served. And there's a sense of right in all of that, but often it goes the wrong way. And that's not to say that we can't justify ourselves. It doesn't mean that there's not a way for us to protect ourselves when we're harmed or when our families are harmed. In fact, another illustration I'll tell you about, some of you all will remember this, uh, when you find yourself in a situation to protect yourself, some years ago, we were just talking about this, some years ago, uh, not long after we had moved here, actually it was just a couple months, uh, one morning I heard a loud crack noise. sounded very alarming. It sounded almost like a firecracker going off, you know, that kind of loud pop early in the morning. Jumped up, went and searched around the house, didn't find anything. Uh, just a few minutes later, Anna wakes up and she says, Daddy, there's a hole in my bedroom wall. Well, immediately I knew what I had heard. My greatest fear was that somebody had maybe unloaded a gun somehow and it had 
misfired directly in our direction. And sure enough, we called the police. There was a bullet hole from the outside, missed her head by about three to four feet, maybe a little bit more than that, where she had just been sleeping. Uh, went through the inside doorway into the bathroom across the hallway. Then we found out later in the day that six more shots had been fired, and we found all the bullets in the casings from that. Well, so I began to realize pretty quickly, putting two and two together, I'm not the brightest kid in the block, but I realized this was more than just a random shot. And so that night, I remember vividly sitting up in our living room, ready to take matters into my own hands if I needed to, because of the uncertainty of what was going on. Now, I didn't, and thankfully the Lord withheld me from any kind of problems. To this day, we don't know what that was all about. It's still an open case, uh, but just whatever it was, God was using it to train us in the act of spiritual living and trusting Him. My point to you simply is not to just bear my soul to you and say, oh, woe is me, because some of you might be saying, Pastor, you shouldn't tell us all that stuff that you struggle with these kinds of things. Well, why not? I mean, I'm a human being just like you are. And so I'm just confessing to you that we all go through times where we want to take matters into our own hands. But what we have to do is we have to remember that God has established law for a reason. And that's to keep everything in balance. God is the establisher of that for us to live under. And a a law that God recognizes as holy, which is a minister for him. And that's what Paul says in Romans 13. Now, so what's going to happen here is as Jesus is beginning to clarify for them their wrong thinking, which is part of what he's going to do, he breaks it down into three parts. He talks about what's happening. He's going to show them how they've gotten wrong, and then he's going to correct them on what needs to happen. And so let's look at these thoughts here quickly today, and we're just going to touch on the subject, and that's again what I'm doing this morning, so you get the picture of what the Lord is really pushing And then we'll talk about the application more so next time. So in verse 38, he says, this was the common law of the day. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, unlike last week's, this is a direct quote from three different places in Scripture. So Jesus is referring them back to something that they would know very, very well as religious leaders. In Exodus 21, 24, here's literally what it says. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24, 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Deuteronomy 19, 21, thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And we're looking at that and we're going, man, alive. That's pretty severe. What's happening here? Well, let's just remember that there is a time period here that God is covering. So we have the Exodus, when is where the, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, and he's establishing for them how they are to live with one another. He's establishing law for this new people group. Then in Leviticus is when he lays out all the ifs, ands, and buts, and so it's a repeating of this one particular thought. And then finally in Deuteronomy, which is 40 years later as the Hebrews are about to pass into the new land and go across the Jordan River, a new generation has been raised up and so God is retelling the law so that this new generation will know what's going on. And this is what we have. And so beginning in Exodus 19 all the way through 23, we have God establishing for them basically two things, the moral law and the civil law, laws that are important 
Okay? The moral law is going to be how people are to interact with one another kindly and honorably. The civil law, which is what we want to focus on this morning, was to be handled by the magistrates or the judges or those who were put in some court system or recognized entity as a recognized authority. And so under the civil law, God is basically saying in these three passages that Jesus is reiterating that they were following, they being the Pharisees, is that the punishment was to match the crime. Exactly. That was God's mandate. In other words, if you do something to someone, you will pay for your crime in exactly the same way. That's pretty clear. And that's pretty ingenious on the part of the Lord, if you do say, because that affects people the best and the clearest. So there are two purposes behind the civil law, generally speaking. You really have to understand this in order to understand what Jesus is dealing with here in the heart. Number one, it was to stop others from doing the same thing. Eye for eye, you get that. But secondly, it was to keep the punishment from being too um, excessive, if you will. In other words, when you steal something, you get your hand cut off. If you cause something to happen to somebody else's eye, then you get your eye gouged out. If your foot causes a problem, and this is all purposeful, by the way. This is not by accident. That was a whole other set of laws. By purpose, if you're trying to harm somebody, then your foot would be cut off. The crime matched or the punishment matched the crime. And the reason was to get the violator to understand that they shouldn't be doing this and to think twice before they commit the crime. Pretty basic, right? Makes sense. To keep it from being excessive or out of balance, you couldn't take a man's hands for his foot or you couldn't take both eyes for something that he did. It was to be balanced. Now, here's an important point, though. That was understood among the criminal, and that's really the point, is that law is not really built for righteousness. The righteous people, in other words. The law is built for unrighteous people. You and I have no fear, Paul says, of the law when we do right, right? If the police officer is going down the road and you see him or her over there in their patrol car and you're obeying the law, there's no anxiety that comes. You may take notice a little differently than you would if it's anybody else, but you're not nervous about it. But if you're doing 95 in a 45 mile an hour zone and you see a police officer, what's going to happen? You're going to get a little upset, right? Because you know that they're going to come after you. Well, that's the idea here, is that the unrighteous people need a law. That's why Paul says, if you obey the authorities, you don't need to be afraid. But if you break the law, you need to be afraid. The law is there to govern the unrighteous. Now, if you've ever noticed, it's the unrighteous who fight against the law. It's those, now I'm, again, I'm, bear with me here this morning and think generally. I'm not talking about all the ifs, ands, or buts of the things that need to be changed and manipulated in amendments and, and that kind of thing. I'm just talking about law and the subject of law right now. People get upset. The unrighteous get upset and fight against law when their rights are the most important to them. And when rights are most important to an individual, it doesn't matter what happens out there external to them. They will throw away everything they don't agree with and agree only with what seems to be right as it affects them. Listen to what Paul said. He said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1.8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How about that? 
realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person. See, so I'm not just making this up. But for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, and listen to this group, or immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So God gave law to protect the righteous from the unrighteous. The law represses the unrighteous. And so we, you and I, as God's people, are to treat law as our friend. It is holy. It is just. We're not to go around it in a personal vendetta. We're not to create our own system. We don't go over it. We don't ignore it. We don't get in the way of it just to keep our freedom. And we certainly don't retaliate when somebody does something wrong to us personally. I'm talking about retaliating personally, which is what Jesus is after here. And we'll see a little more of this in just a second. So to say it in another way, there's a difference between how we handle personal relationships when something goes wrong and how we operate within them as opposed to the court system. Sometimes we can deal with issues among ourselves in a God-honoring way, right? But sometimes the court systems are involved, and this is, what is the, this is what has happened with the Pharisees. They had manipulated God's word to say, oh, no, 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 no. If somebody does something wrong to you personally, then you seek your revenge. You do what's necessary to retaliate and get your way. That's what they had done. They had taken matters into their own hands, taken the focus off of their heart and said, God gave us a law that said, if you hurt me, I come back and I'll hurt you, regardless of what the civil authorities say. Now, if you look at the text of Scripture carefully, you're going to see that everything that happens in a way that is hurtful to another person is still under the orchestration of civil authority in some way in God's word. It's there. And you'll see that as you look through it. Now, we don't have time to do all of that this morning, but just understand that there's never a time when a person is hurt in some way that there's not some authority structure to go by. God never allows any person to take personal vengeance themselves. So again, let's just understand that the Mosaic Law's purpose was designed to fit the crime. But it was also merciful. It was very merciful because it limited the retribution for the offense. And you and I know this. There are times where somebody does something to us and we want to one-up them. I was using the illustration of knocking somebody's tooth out and you're not going to do that, right? But let's suppose somebody knocks your tooth out purposefully. You're going to, in your sinful flesh, desire to knock out five of theirs for your one. You want retribution. You want them to feel what you felt, and even more so. So God is saying, no, there is a grace in the law that says you can't punish the one who has offended you more than what's worthy of the offense. And that was to benefit society. And when it was enacted properly, the community would see it and realize it would be unwise to break the law. I mean, I don't want my eye knocked out, so I'm not going to knock your eye out. 
I'm not going to, I don't want my hand cut off, so I'm not going to do something that violates you with my hand. You get the point. So in the end, society was preserved by proper punishment. Now again, let's talk about us here for a moment. Today, and I'm just speaking generally, not the ifs, ands, and buts, in our legal system, there's very little, at least apparently, to no retribution for people to keep from committing a crime, at least again. Now, people are going to fail and they're going to do certain things. But we're watching in our society how there is little, to, little effect on the criminal today through the retribution that's given out. Okay? That's another subject. Well, the issue is, is that if you did take a man's hand for stealing, immediately, probably going to have second thoughts about using his hand to steal again. You get the point? That's what the Lord is saying here. If an eye were gouged out for causing harm to another man's eye, there'd probably be less violent acts. Now, there's going to be some, and that's why law continues. But the reality exists, and God knows that. In fact, how about this one? Parents, this will help you. Deuteronomy 21.18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death, so that you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Do you hear that in verse 27? 21, excuse me. All the men of the city will stone him. Wow, talking about curbing teenage rebellion. I mean, that would fit. That would take care of a lot of the juvenile delinquency. This was God's word to Israel in the day. The men shall stone him. Notice it was the leaders. This was under the civil authority of the community. So that you will remove the evil from your midst. And, and as you do that, all of Israel will hear it. And what? They'll be afraid. So the next teenager would say, you know what? I don't like what happened to Billy over there. I think I'll obey mom and dad. And so it becomes a pretty obvious thing. And so if you get the point, the law was established so that there's no allowance for personal vengeance. It was to be handled swiftly to curb anything else that was done that was wrong. Now, the second part Jesus deals with here is for them to understand how they had perverted the law. And I've already mentioned that to a little bit of a degree here, the religious leaders twisted the law to fit themselves. They were taking and twisting what God had said, and so they were justifying their actions towards one another when there was some hurt or violation against themselves. They were saying, okay, God says this, so I'm going to do that. If someone does something to you, take vengeance on yourself. Every person was permitted and even given the encouragement to become his or her own judge, jury, and executioner. How would you like to live in that society? Where somebody does something, forget what the law says, forget what the authorities say, you just take it out upon yourself and you go do what you want to do. Somebody comes and cuts your grass purposefully because they don't like you as an individual, you go take your car and you run over top of their building or something. I mean, you know, imagine if we lived in that kind of culture, it would be ridiculous. Well, what happens is when you start getting rid of civil authority is you start having people responding like that. And people will do whatever they feel is necessary to twist and find their personal vengeance however they want to find it, which will become normal. 
So most of you, there are a lot of people, I shouldn't say most, a lot of these people take these verses to mean, again, if you hurt me, I have the right to hurt you back. That's what the Lord is saying. But that's not what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying there is a legal system that I have enacted and put in place, and Paul reiterates this in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that God has instituted for us to be careful about how we do. It's not normal for us to act like that. He does not want us to live that kind of life. Now, even parents adopt this kind of wrong thinking about going after the other person in their raising of children. I've heard this many times before. Uh, when one child hurts the other one, they'll say, well, go over there and wallop him on the head. And the little one goes over there and not only wallops him on the head, but also starts beating him on the rest of their body because sin doesn't know any restraint. And so to say, go take care of the matter yourself with a little person like that who's already partly mostly reprobate in their mind because they have no real upbringing, then they'll not just only knock the tooth out, but they'll say, I'm going to take everything else that belongs to you because I don't like what you did to me. And so it becomes a spiraling effect. So if you understand the three times God uses the phrase here, it was always in relation to civil situations. The situation was always related to civil Authority And parents really become that often in the home. In fact, parents, I would just say that you also then become the civil authority. The idea would be don't let little Billy go beat up little Johnny just because he did something to you. You become the one who controls the situation. You become the one who deals out the just punishment so that there's not a violation against the other child because that can happen. And on and on and on it goes. And we've watched stories of this over the years. You might be like this, that you have in your family a situation where the intensity of uh, frustration towards one another grew to the point where you just can't even be around each other anymore. And as life went by, you just felt the effects of one another causing problems over and over and over again. Well, the law was designed to stop all of that and to keep that from happening. These phrases that Jesus is bringing up here are never related to personal vengeance just because somebody does something to you. You don't need to let the guy have it. So just remember some of those thoughts. That's what he's talking about here. So if we were going to review this, we would simply say that God instituted a system of law. It is just. In other words, something was done to bring about proper retribution. God knew that that had to happen in Israel. He knows we need that. It was fair. It was gracious, but as you heard earlier in the verse in Deuteronomy, it was also without pity. It was without pity. You say, well, that's interesting. Well, the point is, law should not be motivated by pity. Law's purpose is to inflict the punishment on the crime no matter who the person is. It does not pick and choose. Law is black and white. In fact, the biggest problem in my estimation biblically of our system today is that it has too much pity for the one that has done the crime. Now, this is tough because sometimes people make mistakes and we don't want the law to be what it is, but the law is just. How many of you all have been driving down the road and the guy or girl comes up behind, woman comes up behind you as a police officer and they pull you over, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And they say, do you understand what's happened? And you say, yes, here's what's happened, but... And you go into your story. And they say, that's nice, but the law says you violated it, and so here's the punishment. That's right. And you turn around and you say, but, 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 but... 
I didn't, I didn't, but, 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 and we just give all these excuses and they say, I'm sorry, that's the law because that's what law is. Law is just for the punishment for the one who has violated it. And again, in my estimation, that has not been the case and we're seeing that changed over time. People are no longer punished the way that God had originally instituted punishment to be. There are no real serious consequences in a lot of cases. No real reasons to change. In fact, I found this, I thought this was interesting. According to the National Institute of Justice, almost 44% of the recently released people from jail return before the end of their first year out. 44% after the first year. Now why? Why would they go back to to, to prison. Now, I know what the sociologist will say is that, you know, this, and it's true, there's some people that don't know how to function outside of a problem and on and on and on it goes. But the reality is it's the sinful nature. Listen to this, though. 68% of the 405,000 prisoners released in 30 states in 2005 were arrested for a new crime within three years of their release. 68%. 77% were arrested within five years, and by the ninth year, the number reached 83%. No change. What's the problem? Well, the problem is the law has become a pity law instead of a law that fits the crime to protect those that are the righteous. In fact, in our school system, and I don't want to harp too much on this, but I was just having a conversation with someone who works in the school system, and they were talking about an Ill, a situation where um, they were standing out in the hallway with, I think it was the principal. I said it was the principal this morning. I have to double check on that. But I think it was the principal, and they were, one child got up and just walked out of the classroom. And the person that they were talking to says, you know, I, I still know what to do about this. There's no recourse. And so the one who told me the story said, well, I know what you do. You got to inflict some greater punishment. They got to get it. They got to figure out that this isn't going to work. But the more we give in to the freedoms of the sinful self and the desire for the freedoms of the sinful self, the more that sinful self will take. And that's what we're watching. And that's just the reality. Listen to the, what the Lord said. Deuteronomy 19. Verse 19 following, you shall purge the evil from among you. Verse 20, the rest will hear it and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Here's the verse, thus you shall show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So God says law is not to show pity. It is to be black and white. Now finally, the law of God was swift. It was to be enacted immediately. There was no death row. There was nobody put on a waiting list. There was no delay. And the people feared the law and were inclined to do what was right. Now not everybody, as I said earlier, because people are sinful and more people come along and law needs to continue. And there will always be the unrighteous who need the law. But just understand the law is just. It's good because it puts fear into the hearts of people and it protects the righteous people. And the stricter the laws are, the more the righteous are protected, right? You and I are able to do what we're doing this morning. We go into our homes at night. Yes, we put locks on our doors. But we know that there is a system out there that is protecting us 
from those people who are unrighteous and want to cause problems with us. Laws only affect the unrighteous. This is why Paul said what he did in Romans 13. For rulers are not a cause for fear of good behavior, but for evil. If you're going to be evil, then you have lots to be afraid of. You have lots to be concerned about. Law is a protection for the righteous. It's a deterrent for those who practice evil. But if sin is not restrained, chaos will ensue. It will absolutely ensue, which is just about where we are. It is just about where we are. And when God is removed and his, unri- his righteous standards are silenced, there is no voice there anymore for the Spirit of God to move in the hearts of a person, leaving the innocent people open against the evil atrocities and attacks that come against us and unprotected. And all that leads to a society, unfortunately, that is a society that really will not be what God intended for it to be. It's a sad state of affairs. So what are we saying? We're saying, number one, it is never right for us to take the authority in our own hands it is always right to go to the proper authorities to, take sh- to make sure that there is just retribution that is done. We have to be careful about our heart. Okay? Now watch this as we finish this thought for this morning. That brings Jesus to his point in verses 39 through 42. Notice he says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Okay? Now we'll talk about each of those next time in their detail so that you understand the historical context and really see what Jesus is talking about here. But just understand, again, some have said Jesus has to be saying, do not resist an evil person. He must mean never. I mean, are we never to do anything that would resist the evil authorities or evil intentions? Well, no, that's not what the Lord is arguing, and that should be clear by now. In fact, he showed us himself resistance to evil when he drove out the money changers in the temple. He did that personally. James said we're to resist the devil. Micah 6.8 says we're to live justly. And to not uphold justice is to be no better than the one who violates the, through injustice. Because ignorance is just the same as giving in to it. So no, we're not to just let it go. You say, well, what am I supposed to do then? Well, you call the police. You have civil authorities. You report crimes when you hear about them. See, part of the problem we're having also in our culture is we're so silencing ourselves as God's people, we're not being a part of fixing the problem. But God has given us the way to fix it, and that is we, to, we are to report things. We speak out against those things that reject what is good and what is right. We need to be a voice. In fact, we're commanded to hold, uphold righteousness in the church even. When somebody sins, Matthew 18, we go to them and we try to make it right, even to the point of multiple times over. If they won't listen, then we're to put them out of the church which, with the goal of them seeing how much they're missed and what they're missing in the church so that they come back into the church. In fact, even in Galatians 2, 11, when Peter compromised his faith with the Judaizers, Paul went to him and addressed him to his face. So yes, we are to be 
upholding what the law is all about, but not on personal vendettas. That's the point that the Lord is making. You and I need to watch our hearts as things go south more and more, that we don't become the law to ourselves, that we don't take matters into our own hands. And that can be as big or as little as anything. It doesn't have to be on the scale that what we're looking at right here. It can be something very simple. The issue is of the heart. And that's why the question really is not so much about what we are to do, but what's going on in our hearts through all of this. What is the attitude of our heart? As you look across our country today and you're seeing people do what they're doing, is your heart attitude saying, yeah, go get them. They need to be taught a lesson. Or is it what Jesus has just said here in these latter verses? See, that's the challenge. Where's our real heart in all of this? Notice Jesus will say later in chapter 5, verse 43, just a couple sermons from now, he's going to say, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, every time this subject comes up, most people will cross their eyes a little bit and they'll say, Pastor, are you saying to me, if a person comes into my house and threatens my family, that I'm just to let them do it and just stand idly by? No, not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you do everything you can to resist that person, but that's as far as you take it. You catch them, you hold them, however you can, until the proper authorities can deal with them. But watch this. In your heart should not be just retribution necessarily, but what should be coming out is, are you hungry? Let me get you something to eat. Are you thirsty? I'll offer you something to drink. If he needs the gospel... You give them the gospel, which somebody breaks into your house is probably going to need the gospel, right? You see the turn here? What has happened from the human sinful nature, even among the religious leaders, was, no, you take the matter into your own hands. You deal with it. Now, remember, they were under an oppressive, oppressive situation with Rome. And feelings and emotions were very intense, And they wanted retribution against the civil authorities who were over them. But God says, no, not so with my people. My people do just the opposite. We are to show the difference of who really is in charge. In other words, we're not to take what seems right and turn it into something wrong because of our wrong attitude. It's all about the heart. Do you believe that God will deal justly with those people who perpetrate us and cause problems for us? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, listen, you want to keep this all in perspective? Do not fear those who kill the body. Now listen, if somebody walks up to you with a loaded handgun and says to you, I'm going to kill you, there's a tendency that you're probably going to feel a little fear, right? I mean, just a smidge. Probably so. But listen to what the Lord is saying. Don't fear that person. Because they only have the ability to take your physical body. 
But listen, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Or Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Paul says in Romans several times over, beginning in 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And here's the verse, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to do it. And in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the marching orders, or those are the marching orders of the Christian, the child of God. Praise his name, he's put authority in place for us to have a way for us to deal with circumstances and situations. But the real issue is not even so much that. The real issue is, where's your heart? What's the attitude of your heart? Are you loving that person that has come against you? That's the test of, true, of a true believer, even when they're doing something that's very challenging. And next time... We hear Jesus explain again a little bit more about the subject of godly retaliation. And he's going to talk about basically from these verses four specific human issues we face when we're come against. Things that we deal with on a personal internal level when somebody comes against us and then how we're to respond even when we've been challenged in those personal ways. Okay? All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, certainly this should be clear to us by now, and I think for most of us listening to this, we would say absolutely we would agree with that 100%. And we thank you and we praise you for those that work in the legal system and the whole system of law, regardless of all the things and the idiosyncrasies of what it is today. We thank you that law is of you, and it is established to protect the righteous. We thank you, Father. We praise you this morning that we live in a society, in a world, where the righteous can be protected from the unrighteous. But Lord, help us as we hear these words this morning to never, never, never assume that it's okay to take vengeance upon ourselves and to deal with something on our own. But Lord, may we always be in submission to you and examine our hearts to make sure that we're really loving others, even those that persecute us, in a way that's right, according to you, not according to the laws of man, but according to the laws of God. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I pray that you'd help us to see in the text this morning, even as Paul was giving to the church in Corinth, that the emphasis is always examining the heart. And so, Lord, help us to do that this morning. Perhaps there's someone or some situation in our minds that comes up, that you bring up, even now that we've struggled with, some situation that a person has treated us poorly. Maybe it's somebody who's treated us poorly for years, someone that has caused us internal turmoil that we just want retribution over in some way. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to remember that you examine our hearts individually and it's up to you to decide what's right and wrong for another individual. 
And that's why you gave us the legal system that you did. And Lord, speak to us, we pray, as we take part in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Missy is going to lead us in, in the... You, you left somebody?